tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. State officials warned yesterday morning that the wildfire death count could go up, and by late evening, they confirm the blaze claimed 36 lives. At a news conference last night, emergency officials updated the situation. This is Major General Kenneth Hara of the Hawaii State Department of Defense. I'm going to first review uh, the support that we've been providing to Maui County, and then um, after that, talk about um, Hawaii County. So we've been providing support for search and rescue. As I mentioned um, earlier today, the primary focus is to save lives and then to prevent human suffering and to mitigate great property loss. So that's exactly what the counties um, were and have been doing and are doing. Um, so I have to defer to both Maui County and Hawaii County. If, if you're expecting like how many buildings were damaged, um, how many deaths, uh, we're, we're letting the, the counties take the lead for providing those statistics. So uh, for the missions, search and rescue, I also mentioned we're in support of the county fire departments with um, military helicopter fire suppression, water bucket support, and I'll go over some of the stats at, at the end as I'm, as I'm closing out, uh, providing traffic control and security. Uh, what we do anticipate is uh, additional requests, and we're already providing support for trying to get the communications back up, water distribution. Um, we're hearing that uh, Maui may need additional law enforcement support, so that may be both for uh, federal law enforcement and uh, state law enforcement, so we're working through that. Um, and then as we start getting closer towards the recovery, we know we're going to be leaning on our federal partners for support with debris clearance, uh, temporary housing and then, you know, trying to get the, the loans and, and the, the businesses and the, the private, the individual assistance and public assistance for, for Maui County. And Hawaii U.S. Senator Maisie Hirona was already on Maui to tour the Maui Academy for Performing Arts facility and to meet with community agricultural leaders. She also spoke about how the federal government will be assisting. This is truly uh, an all-hands-on-deck situation, and there are people here who have not slept at all as they watch the, uh, what is happening on Maui. As uh, the, the Lieutenant Governor has mentioned, and I do thank her for her early leadership and bringing all of us together, as well as the Governor who will be uh, landing in Hawaii in a couple of hours, uh, that we are all pulling together. And one of the first calls I got this morning was from uh, Secretary Mayorkas of Homeland Security, who assured me that they stand ready to do whatever they can to, to provide support. I've reached out to the SBA Administrator Guzman because uh, the uh, many, many of the businesses who have been devastated by th these uh, fires, um, I hope that many of them will want to come back and, and get back into business, and they're going to need the SBA to provide them the loans and other support. I have been getting phone calls from uh, supporters from both the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, including Chuck Schumer, our, our um, Majority Leader, who has said to our entire delegation that we stand ready. Please know that every effort is going to be made to bring the federal resources, and I know that the President is assessing uh, the possibility, and I hope that it comes soon, a declaration of a national disaster so that there can be more federal resources brought to bear. But as the General said, the first thing is that we need to ensure the safety of our people. And so fire suppression is uppermost, and the search and rescue operations continue, and then restoring uh, telephone uh, accessibility to people, as well as electrical power to some 10,000 households. All of those things are critical, and then going forward, we're going to need to stay the course to restore uh, everything that we need to, to do to uh, help Maui County get back on its feet and to take care of our people. That was Senator Hirono speaking at a news conference last night. Uh, FEMA Regional Administrator Bob Fenton just happened to be in the islands and took some time to address ongoing safety concerns and how his agency will assist with recovery efforts on Maui. My first uh, message would be one of safety. Uh, I would urge everyone to follow their local responders. Uh, there's still wind, there's still fire going on. Uh, life's being saved, so please follow your local uh, res uh, your local officials, listen to their message, uh, and to make sure you're safe, make sure you have a plan, make sure that uh, 
that uh, if you have uh, if you have uh, questions, you're working with your local officials. Um, so we talked a lot about uh, the response to this event so far, and one of the first tools we do, we provide the federal government for fires, is called a Fire Management Assistance Grant. And over the last 24 hours, I've approved five of those for Hawaii, uh, three for Maui, and two for the Big Island of Hawaii. Those grants provide immediate assistance to fight the fire, to go ahead and bring additional resources in, whether they be contracted or resources from other federal agencies, state or local agencies, and uh, provides the cost so that, uh, so that resources aren't the issue to uh, stop the fire. Um, it also provides hazard mitigation funding so that we can make improvements on infrastructure uh, for future events and try to prevent uh, future losses through similar events. Um, right now, we are mobilizing the federal uh, force. As you heard uh, from uh, General Herr, the, uh, there's been many uh, federal agencies already involved, Department of Defense, U.S. Coast Guard have been involved in the immediate response to this event already. Uh, but there'll be many other federal agencies that start moving this way today or on island already. And we're starting to work on the recovery, the things that we'll do immediately post-event, like uh, looking at uh, do they need help with debris removal? Do they need uh, other types of assistance from us? And so we're doing those assessments right now uh, and looking at those uh, next steps. Um, some of the assistance that may come, and as you heard uh, both the senator and the lieutenant governor talk about, was uh, a major disaster declaration from the president. So we'll be looking at all those programs and looking to turn those programs on very quickly. Again, uh, the president uh, will make that decision in the hours and days ahead. And uh, we're already starting to bring the team here. If individuals have questions about what are those programs, the best place to go is ready.gov or download the FEMAP. There's a lot of information for individuals that might have experienced loss. Uh, recommend to individuals, uh, you know, start to contact your insurance company, keep records, receipts, information uh, that uh, you may be submitting to FEMA uh, to ask for in, uh, assistance and grants to reimburse some of those costs. So we uh, look forward to uh, continuing the partnership with Hawaii uh, and we'll be here um, to help not only in the response, but uh, through the recovery. Thank you. And Maui Senator Linda Coit shared where a Valley Isle residents can find shelter and assistance. Um, as you see, the team behind us have assembled as swift, as fast as possible to get resources out to the families there. Uh, the lines of communications have been open. Airlines have been on board. Um, I can tell you the setup here at the convention center is open. It's welcoming of every resource to our congressional delegation. Um, bringing in FEMA and making sure the information is available. We are also trying to get um, supplies as fast as we can. As we work through uh, Mayor Bisson in Maui County, who has probably not slept for um, just as many hours as the people behind me, um, please, to our first responders, um, thank you guys for being out there, getting out to the families as fast as you can. Um, for those, uh, Maui Memorial is open. Please do not hesitate to the families that need medical attention, even if it's just a small burn, help. They are open. They are um, wanting to service you for whatever help you need. But I want to say this um, as fast as we can. Uh, we're trying to do whatever we can to get those resources to Maui, along with working with my colleagues um, in Maui who are also on the ground um, pushing out information and to many of the people that are stranded, trying to make sure we get things there um, accordingly and not to be just scattered all over the place. So I want to say thank you to all of you um, and be safe. Godspeed. And this morning, just within the last hour, we finally connected with State Senator Angus McKelvey, whose district, Lahaina, took the brunt of this devastation. We have been trying to hook up since yesterday. The challenges of the wildfire are compounded by lack of power and communications. He spoke to us from the Kapalua Airport near Lahaina, where there is limited cell phone service. He fled that fire with the clothes on his back. I barely made it out, but yeah, I'm, I'm okay. You know, I have, you know, I don't, I literally don't have anything. <laughs> I got the clothes on my back, so, but at this point, you know what, I'm just very grateful that that, you know, that 
to be healthy and safe and you know but a lot of families especially with kids are just absolutely in the same in the worst situation even more so there's tons of them did you lose your home uh, the apartment it looks like the apartment where i was at was gutted so i don't know until people can go in and actually assess it, it, but it appears that way at this point. Well, uh, we were very concerned for you yesterday when your staff didn't know where you were. Yeah, so we were very worried. So we're glad you're you're safe. What's it like there, and, and where are you at? Uh, I'm at the one little area where we have any kind of cell phone reception, the Kapalua Airport, and that's the hugest, biggest problem right now is we have no comms, we have no communications, and information about what is available what the status of things are isn't getting out at all to the community. We just passed a food drive where there's like cars all the way up the road. But in talking to people, they heard about it through the coconut wireless. So if they didn't, you know, imagine all the other people who don't know about this stuff. And so I've been desperately like, you know, trying to get a cow or cell phone on wheels from anybody, you know, from the federal government, county, FEMA, everything, so we can get some kind of communications out. Yeah, we understand it's a real challenge. Power's out. The service is spotty. Uh, we understand that the governor is uh, uh, doing a tour of the island now, and we'll be holding a news conference later this afternoon. Yes, yes, uh, he is. Uh, from what I understand, I was hoping to intercept him over here to give him a firsthand account from somebody you know who was born and raised here about magnitude and devast- you know, the devastation. Uh, I've been, you know, communicating to my colleagues and thank them because they've been hugely supportive. But I keep hitting on the same three things that people need now, which is communications, comms. We need fuel. Every people are running out of gas everywhere in propane. Uh, you know, we have an apartment building where if they don't get propane, all of the plumbing is going to literally go right into the ocean. Um, so we desperately need fuel supplies and communications, and you know, we're hoping that. They will come soon. We've been making calls uh, to the healthcare association. You know, we understand that there are efforts underway to to deal with things like, you know, what do you tell the dialysis patients, you know, who may need to undergo that process? Uh, just, you know, basic things just to stay alive. Well, yeah, well, there's a, you know, there's a um, CPAP a person, in, you know, where I had parked my car, you know, to be able to sleep out of it for the night. They graciously pull up in front of their place. They have to be the seat back, and they got three days left, so they're going to have to leave. And I think the general message to everybody, medical, especially visitors, is we need you to leave West Maui. We need to reduce the population down to those who are truly, you know, have no place to go. We can get them lodging and the food and materials, and also we can do the kind of surveying and rescue and clean up. I mean, you look at Aniki, you look at the, the smoke and the ash and the toxic fumes. I mean, you just look at what's ahead you know, now and in the future. It's momentous. And that's what's really starting to think. The shock is starting to slowly subside, and that is kind of the realization I see right now is the enormity, the gravity of it. And what's the situation at the airport? You know, what can you see there? Are there flights going in and out of Kapalua? Uh, no, they're, they're, they're right now it's mostly supplies coming in. I thank the Marin County and, and the, the, the DOD you know, for making this the, you know, the distribution point because most of the town's population is on this side of Lahaina now. And the road out of Lahaina from the south is closed, and we're trying to work to get it open so that residents can leave and come back and resupply themselves, which would be a huge, huge thing. But right now, you know, the rule is if you leave this side of the island, they're not going to let you back in. And so we're hoping there can be some kind of a realization that a lot of people whose homes are intact on the north side of the island. you got them, you know, people who fled Lahaina who are living with them, staying with them. And if they could get in and out and be allowed to do so without going into Lahaina town, then they could resupply themselves. And that would be a huge, a huge thing, at least until we can get communications and fuel in here. My biggest priority right now is to continue to hammer from the community on every level to get those things immediately. And then if we can just get those things immediately, then that will help to stabilize the situation, in my mind, because all the people who are, as we saw before with Katrina, all the people who, because of no communications, didn't know search and rescue, didn't know about Kuzuma, didn't know about there's a medical transport out of Kapalua Airport if they have an emergency. And so having this communications restored to me is, is in the priority yesterday and today, and also hopefully getting a way for residents to, to get out to resupply and be able to come back 
But I recognize Lahaina Town. It's a huge wasteland. I flew over in a helicopter. It literally looks like I took a tour of the Svansk region of Ukraine. I mean, there was explosions going on all day yesterday afternoon. And when the fuel dock in Lahaina Harbor exploded, the entire place was just raining down flames, which, of course, set all the boats on fire. Oh, my gosh. What a heartbreak. There are, there's literally a burned-out, melted ferry in the middle of the Channel of France and another fishing boat. It looked like somebody's literally bombed the line of Harbor. Well, I appreciate you reaching out to us. You take care and you stay safe, Senator. Okay. All right. Thanks, thanks All right. Aloha. Aloha. Bye. That was State Senator Angus McKelvey, who represents the Lahaina District, which took the brunt of the wildfires triggered uh, triggered by the winds from Hurricane Dora. McKelvey says improved communications and fuel are the greatest needs. He asked that people not travel to West Maui and to also donate to reputable organizations warning against scams. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Lauren Hanna Chai, The Five Senses, an exploration of contemporary identity. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org. HPR Atherton Studio Concerts are back. Starting August 19th, join us in person in Honolulu for our Indie 808 performance series featuring Kaylana, The Mauve, Evan Kay, and Kennedy Taylor and the Electric Pancakes. For tickets and more info, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the Global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. The devastation in Lahaina Town includes the loss of cultural sites important in Hawaii's history. HBR reporter Ku'uve Hiraishi joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. I think of Moku'ula when I think of Lahaina, Waiola Church, the old courthouse, the Baldwin home. These are just some of the cultural and historic landmarks that have been damaged, if not destroyed, by the recent wildfire. Images of uh, the Waiola Church ablaze circulated in media and social media, the island's first. Christian Church was built in 1823, and it recently celebrated its bicentennial in May of this year. Kahu Anella Rosa, who has not yet been able to assess the damage, she's still stranded outside of Lahaina, hasn't even gone back to her own home, which she understands is still standing, but uh, being doused with water by her nephew because it is still embers are are flying here and there. Uh, But she says it's just a building. But it's just the structure. You know, it's really the people that make the church. And, you know, we will come together on Sunday if we can. If they let us gather, if they let us go back to the property and we sit down, we do our prayer, we kuka-kuka, talk story, get relaxed, and then we'll see how we do church from there and just put our pieces together. You know, there's nothing we can do. We, You know, several of our families have lost their homes, including mine. Four of my family members lost their home in Lahaina. So, It's an awakening. It's it's a moment to just reflect and realize, you know, we have faith, we have hope, we have love, we have support, and more more importantly, we have a community of people that really care for one another. I mean, honestly, sincerely, after what we went through in 2018, we can get through this. It'll take a little longer to rebuild, but we will get through it. I'm sure we will. So Rosa is referring, of course, to the 2018 fires that hit West Maui during Hurricane Lane, not as extensive as the damage caused by this recent fire. Uh, But Wyola Church at the time had served as a resource center, donation center for families uh, impacted by the fire. And so when she heard about the recent fire Tuesday afternoon, the first thought that came through her mind was, okay, let's get everybody on call to be at the church and open it for families tomorrow morning. But she... Uh, realized that night that it had uh, been um, burnt. We've seen recent uh, 
images of the church. It's just the roof and some of the damage to the top, but the structure itself, the body, is still standing. Uh, the Viola Church grounds are also the resting place of Hawaiian royalty. Uh, historian Ron Williams Jr., uh, who might be familiar to some of our listeners, uh, his kumu, Tama Kaleleiki, is the caretaker of the Waiola Church Cemetery and founder of Kia'i o Waine'e. He started Nakia'i o Waine'e about 30 years ago, uh, and he's been out there, even in poor health, you know, taking care of those graves. But that graveyard, you know, is the second royal cemetery. Keopolani, Nahiana'ana, Mohopili, his wife Kalakua, the mother, grandmother of the future kings. You know, all of these folks are, are they're, they're easy rest there in Lahaina. Lahaina has been home to Hawaiian royalty since the 1500s when Maui's chief Pi'ilani reigned from Moku'ula, a tiny island now covered by a scorched baseball field. Uh, Liholiho Kamehameha II also ruled from Moku'ula when he made Lahaina the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom. Devastating, heartbreaking, and, and unbelievable were the words 46-year-old Tori Ho'opi'i used as she held back tears describing the wildfire damage to her hometown of Lahaina. Ho'opi'i and her partner, Tiare Lawrence, run the social media site Kaku'ohaleakala, and they've been updating folks 24-7 since Tuesday, a task Ho'opi'i says has not been easy. And I'm seeing all the footage coming in, and I'm trying to hold it together, but that's my hometown too, right? And you know all the history too, because you—that's your hometown, and you were married in the Waiola Church. <laughs> so it's like, oh my gosh! But it's actually something you would see out of a movie. It's people fleeing for their lives, jumping in the ocean, Lahaina Harbor's burning, and someone sending you footage trying to—they jumped in their boat, you know, trying to flee for their lives as they're watching Lahaina Town, Front Street, and the harbor being burnt. I'm just like, oh my gosh. It's heartbreaking because that's like your historical town and the first capital of the Hawaiian kingdom is gone now. You can hear the emotion in her voice. It was a hard <laughs> interview to get through, but um, I mahalo ho'opi for, for sharing that and such a raw moment, I think, for a lot of those who call Lahaina home who are still searching for family and looking to this. There is a lot of uh, history there. So other historic structures from the 1800s have also uh, been lost, uh, reported to have been lost in the fire. Baldwin House, the home of Reverend Dwight Baldwin and Charlotte Fowler Baldwin, whose son, Henry, was the co-founder of Alexander and Baldwin, a sugar plantation owner. The old Lahaina Courthouse, which everyone uh, might recognize as the structure in front of the uh, 150-year-old banyan tree, which we understand the roots are still intact and is standing, but all the leaves and some of the branches have come off of that tree. But the old Lahaina Courthouse, which is home to the Lahaina Restoration Foundation, housed a number of Hawaiian artifacts from the area that are all thought to have been damaged, if not destroyed. So when you think about uh, these uh, implements or these these artifacts and the stories that go along with them, that's part of the, the sense of loss that some uh, who pay attention to the history of Hawaii are thinking about. So a lot of loss to process, um, not just homes and lives, but of that history and culture. And uh, Ron Williams Jr., a historian that we spoke to earlier, helped kind of put that into perspective for Lahaina. Sometimes, you know, Calabay, sometimes it's difficult to, to grasp and to, and to take in all of that loss. Um, but I do, you know, also want to remind folks that, um, that Lahaina is such a sacred place and such an important place. It has that mana and it has that power. Um, to resurrect itself as it always has. And hopefully uh, we'll see, and I, I expect to see, um, people come together and um, and make uh, Lahaina maybe even better. So there's Tragic that, loss. Right, there's that sense of loss from a lot of uh, the folks that I've been speaking to from the community, but there's also this sliver of, of resilience of this, you know, we've been through this before. We're going to get through this again. And I like uh, Kahu Anela Rosa over at Viola Church had said, you know, it's just a structure. It's just a building. We can rebuild that. And a lot of the history and hopefully uh, the history and understanding of culture in the area of Lahaina is in the people of Lahaina who have learned it, who are trying uh, to revitalize it and perpetuate that for future generations. So we should see what happens next. Yeah, national coverage they've been talking about, oh, Lahaina is a, you know, tourist spot. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the deeper understanding that this means a lot to the people 
who were from here. Uh, I happened to watch on the news last night a couple of uh, ladies who had just flown in, tourists, visitors, mm. and they said, you know, we just flew in yesterday. We did not realize that as we went through that historic area that that would be the last of it that would be up in flames. And so, you know, I think they felt that loss, too, that they were fortunate enough to have seen that in their short time here. That's amazing. I, I don't think that, I think that's very rare as well. I know uh, P.E. at least had mentioned when uh, Hawaiian Air and Southwest were bringing online those $19 flights to help folks get out, that they were, you know, we've got limited resources was the storyline. We've got limited resources. We've got limited shelter for residents of Lahaina if there's any way to have visitors, you know, uh, relocate to another uh, part of the island or to another island that would help in terms of uh, using the res- limited resources for those who live there. Yeah, and it's going to be a tough time uh, as we recover from these losses, the loss of life, the loss of buildings, livelihood, um, the loss of visitors to this area for the mm-hmm. folks that depend on on sure. uh, travelers. Uh, but, yeah, certainly something uh, to pause, you know. Uh, but, again, uh, many lives were saved, um, yes. you know, people plucked from the ocean. <laughs> and so uh, we have to be hopeful. Uh, that uh, Lahaina Town will recover. And I hear hope in, in the voices of everyone I've spoken to so far, despite yeah. the loss. So, Yeah, our prayers are, are with them all. Thank you so much, Kuvehi. That was HPR's Kuvehi Reishi with an update on the devastating cultural losses as wildfires tore through historic Lahaina Town. You can find her stories online at, Hawaii, at hawaiipublicradio.org. Thanks. It is now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Oh, gosh, Chad, where do we begin? <laughs> there are too many things to say, and if I repeat some stuff you've already heard, uh, my apologies. Uh, if it hasn't already been reported on your end, there will be a press conference at 3.30 uh, this afternoon. Uh, Governor Green back in the islands on Maui. He will be with Mayor Richard Disson. I think Senator Brian Schatz will be there as well as General uh, Kenneth Hara, that's 3.30 in Wailuku there. So we'll get an update uh, in terms of what's been happening. And I suppose the other big news uh, in in the last hour or two is that President Biden has uh, declared a disaster uh, for Maui and the Big Island. So that means federal relief can start coming our way. uh, And of course, it's going to be needed given the great devastation, all the homes and businesses that have been lost. Yes. And uh, you have a reporter that's based there, uh, you know, on the island. And you've got, I think, another two more people that are helping to report. Yes. Actually, Jack Truesdale and Thomas Heaton are there uh, on the ground in Lahaina. I think they were actually heading to upcountry as well, where some of the fires have been. Kevin Fuchii, our photographer, and uh, Kuuka Noi as well. Uh, as a matter of fact, we just flew over another photographer and another reporter, Stuart Yerton and David Croxford. That's how big this story is. That's how focused we're going to be on this, the entire state, uh, for weeks and I'm sure months to come. Uh, but yes, we're on the ground and reporting and trying to provide as many updates uh, in real time. I did hear just from the county of Maui that it looks like 80% Again, my apologies if you've already reported this, but 80% of the fire there in Lahaina appears to have been contained. I'll say that with a cautionary note, of course. Yes, and, you know, we were just checking in with uh, uh, the uh, guard, and they were just about to deploy their helicopters, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, with the water buckets to help kind of mm. uh, get those fires under control. Uh, yeah, so it it's just uh, amazing, you know, as you check in, because this picture is changing quickly. Uh, I know uh, we were also told that uh, I think the number of people in shelters, according to Haima, I think has gone down to about 622, you know, from the 2,000 from yesterday. Uh, so hopefully some of those folks have been, you know, uh, flown out uh, or have sought shelter with family and friends on island. As of this reporting, I'm not hearing uh, any further uh, fatal um, casualties. The 36 that died, of course, we're hopes and prayers that that will not change and condolences for those who've lost 
folks. Uh, 271 buildings destroyed is the last number that I checked. You know, Catherine, I think what's going to happen is we hopefully are starting to move into a recovery phase. The people are getting out of the shelters. People are finding their way back home. They're leaving Maui. Um, is how exactly this happened. Um, the state said officials from the acting governor, Sylvia Luke, to General Hara, to others, said, you know, there's no way you could really prepare for this. We were taken by surprise. You know, who knew that Hurricane Dora, which didn't hit us, was going to send all these strong winds, as well as the dry vegetation and the low humidity. But some are starting to wonder, well, what caused the, the fires to start? Uh, Mayor Bisson said yesterday, now is not the time. We're not focused on the investigation. But I would imagine in the days ahead, maybe even sooner, attention will focus on exactly what happened. Was it a down utility pole? We just don't know right now. Yeah, and there were lots of lines down, you know, and, and the other thing, you know, too, is, you know, when those winds are so high as they were, I think they were expecting more like the 50-mile-an-hour mm. range, and they were, you know, maybe up to 80. Uh, but the helicopters can't fly to douse the uh, the fires because it's too dangerous for those Right, assets. that's what Mayor Bisson said uh, yesterday at the press conference at the Capitol. They couldn't get the, co the choppers in there until the next day. Those winds now apparently have come down considerably. But here, even here on Oahu in Manoa Valley, where I live, my little cottage was shaking like crazy. The jalousies were going nuts, but uh, nothing nothing compared to what happened in West uh, West Maui. Yes, our, our heart goes out to those folks, and we are going to be in a long recovery. Uh, you know, so uh, hopefully we've got to just band together. Uh, everybody will, and that uh, tempers will be in check as we try and help each other through this very difficult time. Yeah, calling for aloha. I think that's what the lieutenant governor said yesterday. Let's all show some aloha. Charities are abounding. Red Cross, any number of relief funds, uh, eager for your financial support, but also your your manal, your your emotional support too. Yeah, and make sure it's reputable organizations. Uh, watch out for those scammers. There you go. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. Uh, for more on the coverage there on Maui and the Big Island, visit civilbeat.org. Aloha, this is Steve Kerwood, host of Living on Earth. Each week we discuss the challenges of climate disruption, but we also look for solutions and ways to cope and thrive. And it brings us special joy to showcase the wonders of nature and the spectacular biodiversity of the planet we call home. So join me tonight at 6.30 here on HPR One. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. I'm Russell Subiono, host of the HPR podcast, This Is Our Hawaii. Come with me as I travel across our state to talk to communities about the legacy of large land ownership, and how that impacts our residents' sense of belonging. Okomako Hawaii Keia. This is our Hawaii. Available wherever you get your podcasts. The National Weather Service has dropped all hazardous weather headlines, including its wind advisories and red flag fire warnings. Meteorologists say Hurricane Dora's bypass of the islands coincided with hazardous fire conditions, including drought, low humidity, and high winds. But experts are still trying to figure out the link to climate change and wildfires. Wildfire specialist Clay Trowernick explored this idea in a 2020 research paper written titled Fire and Rain, the Legacy of Hurricane Lane in Hawaii. It was written after wildfires broke out during the deluge of rain from Hurricane Lane in 2018, and it asked whether we were doing enough to understand the possible relationship between hurricanes and forest fires. HPR reporter Savannah Harriman-Pote talked with Clay Trowernick. There is a relationship that we need to understand better. Um, this first came to uh, our attention and uh, specified the attention of the National Weather Service 
uh, in particular, uh, their forecaster, Derek Rowe, um, in 2018. And that was both um, Hurricane Lane. And if we recall, there were evacuations due to wildfires in and around Lahaina and Kapu'ua during that hurricane. Um, so they actually were evacuating hurricane shelters because of brush fires and the high winds um, really prevented um, or made it very challenging for uh, the county fire to respond to those fires and to contain those fires. Oftentimes, especially given the difficulties of access and difficulties with topography, right, all the steep terrain we're dealing with, um, we rely on air support, helicopter support. And when you have wind conditions like what we've seen just the past couple of days, um, that's not really an option. It's not safe. Um, so this is something we started looking at. Um, we had another uh, close pass of a hurricane that same year, which coincided with the largest fires we've seen in a long time on Oahu, which burned three valleys on the west side were burning simultaneously, Waianae, Makaha, and Keaau, um, as well as a large fire in Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. Um, so this really prompted us to kind of start looking at, um, and we're actually, as we're observing the weather during these fires, is really what triggered Derek to start looking at what what's going on, and then what really kind of started figuring out is, that in addition to the increase of winds, um, these storm systems tend to draw moisture towards them, right? They're just kind of sucking up all the moisture out of the air in and around that, the, the, the radius around the storm. And so what we were watching was all of these relative humidities across these weather stations just plummeting as these storms approach and pass. And relative humidity um, is really key because at the drier the air conditions, the drier those dead fuels, all the dead grasses and branches and leaves, leaf litter and things like that, and the more explosive and um, ferocious they, they burn. Um, so that's that. It's in addition to the winds, it's this dry dry air that we experience when the kind of when these hurricanes miss us. Okay, and and just to be explicit, you're not saying that a a hurricane, for instance, will clear brush or top over trees that might at a later point cause forest fires or brush fires. You're saying that these two events could happen simultaneously. Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you get the storm as like a near miss or close enough where we're not getting any moisture and precipitation, um, the high winds and it actually results in drier air which will then create more conditions under which it's more likely to see a fire. And if a fire starts, it's much more difficult for firefighters to contain. What changes do we need to make around the way we communicate risk to the public as we better understand this relationship? Well, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, for example, with this event, this storm, um, Derek Rowe at the National Weather Service had issued a heads up uh, kind of a special warning to the fire managers in the state saying we're anticipating these conditions. Um, the problem for, like, in the sense of the, the, the burden that the firefighters and everyone who's responding to these fires faces is that um, the, the things that's within most of like, that's most within our control is managing the fuels. Right. And so that kind of action, those kinds of activities need to be in place and, and sort of months before the incident. And so we can look at how a storm system like this will create bad fire weather. Um, and maybe it aligns with summertime drought, right, which is kind of tends to be our hurricane season as well. Um, but the real take home from these fires and the thing that we've been seeing again and again over the past you know, for a couple decades now, is the fact that the landscape around our communities has completely transformed. And that's not due to any direct action we've taken. It's the fact that we've seen declines in agriculture across the state, right? So we were kind of, you know, at the, the aftermath of this plantation era, this post-plantation times where all of these vast extents of uh, plantation agriculture and ranch lands, the footprints of those operations have shrunk dramatically. And what fills in that land after you stop farming, after you stop working the land, are all these tropical uh, non-native grasses uh, and some shrubs as well. And those create incredibly dangerous fire conditions. And those fuel types, these grasses in particular, they respond so quickly and so largely to these fluctuations in weather um, so we're, we're, it kind of puts us at the mercy of these conditions, right? So they're, they're, these are things that are like we, yeah. 
All that to say is that we can manage fuels in a better way. There are lots of things, steps we could take that would make these landscapes less likely um, to be subject or less likely to burn when we do have dangerous weather conditions. In 2019, in the wake of additional fires on Maui and throughout the state, you authored an article in Civil Beat calling for a proactive statewide response. In the years that have passed, have you seen any positive progress? Yes, I've seen positive progress. Um, Unfortunately, it's been like small scale, but we've seen communities step up and kind of, you know, join these firewise or form firewise communities. And that's a lot of the work attributable to the Hawaii Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization. And that's where you get homeowners to kind of get together and help each other make safer conditions around their communities. Um, We've seen actions being taken um, on West Oahu, for example, where you have uh, farmers doing fuels mitigation around their farm, improving access for firefighters, improving water, uh, access to water resources, for example. Um, we've also seen really good coordination among landowners, land managers, and fire responders, right? So there are these task forces on various different islands where they get together and they you know, improve coordination of resources in the event of, of uh, fire response. Um, you know, the kind of the, the but part of this is that we just need to be doing this at scale. Um, and we need to be providing resources that we can, you know, manage these lands at, at larger scale, take these actions at larger scale. So all that to say, we've got really cool examples of people replanting areas so that you convert grasslands to like forest cover, which reduces fire risk. Um, you know, in working with managers, for example, or grazers, um, for example, in the Big Island to rotate cattle through areas to knock down fire risk. Um, but these are things that need to be scaled up. Um, we, we're, we're, we've, there's about a million acres of these grasslands in the state. Um, there's knowledge there, especially among the ranching community, uh, of strategies that, that can work. But when we get these big sort of extreme weather events that we're dealing with right now, um, you know, we, we are not doing enough to make uh, safer conditions for our, for our communities, obviously, but in, in particular for the fire responders, right? who have to work in these conditions. That was fire expert Clay Tarnick talking to HBR Savannah Harriman-Pote about a report that he co-authored with other researchers following Hurricane Lane five years ago. We started the week with chocolate on our minds. And today we're turning our attention to Maui Kuia Estate Chocolate, a cacao farm whose proceeds go to charity, started by a retired biotech executive. Its success is being looked at closely by others in the fledgling uh, chocolate, uh, craft chocolate industry. But the recent destruction from the Maui wildfires has put a pause on the operations. Vice President Dan O'Doherty is stuck on Oahu trying to get a handle on the damage. At last check, uh, he believed his workers were okay, but some were left homeless by the fire. We talked to him earlier in the week when he was uncertain about his return flight due to the 60-mile-an-hour winds. We talked to him about how the company got its start and how it has innovated to get the fledgling Hawaii craft chocolate industry up and running. We had a lot of private landowners as collaborators, like throughout the whole island chain. And Maui, you know, we did a site with a man named Gunnar Zalkers, who is a just recently retired biotech entrepreneur and uh, by far the best collaborator we ever had, being a real data person. So I went over to, you know, collect some data and manage his trial, which was just 40 cacao trees that we were trying the same trees, so grafted or cloned. To see how they perform in, you know, hot and dry areas through like mountainous areas, you know, almost up near a volcano. And when I I met him and and had lunch, I was talking about how the evolution of Hawaii cacao, you know, hopefully would go in the way that, say, wine and Napa did, right? And where, unlike the rest of the world, which just kind of plant seeds and let them grow and kind of you get what you get, 
right? And it's a blend of varieties and, you know, not much is, is very tight, but rather we could evolve it in like a wine model. He's, he's very stoic and, uh, and serious, but, but great. And so I couldn't really tell. I never met the guy before whether he was bonding to this. And he let me say my whole kind of peace and dream for how we can make chocolate in Hawaii like that. And then basically at the end of lunch, he said like, that's what I want to do. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> and, uh, that was the kind of start of the project. So for a long time, I was just a consultant designing and building the farm. And then at one point, he said, you know, I'm going to build a factory. I'm going to make some of the best chocolate in the world, very much like winemakers make it. So single varietals, you know, and very customized blends. And, and he said, you know, when I do that, I'd like you to really come on board permanently rather than just a consultant. So that's, that's the kind of short story of like the origin of the company. The fun thing about that chocolate is you get a box and you get to sample all the incredible flavors that you've been playing around with. And my favorite happens to be lemongrass, I have to admit. But it is really interesting to see how far you can push the envelope uh, and create these really unusual flavors for chocolate. Yeah, I don't know that anyone else has a lemongrass chocolate. And so it's funny because we, we both love chocolate itself. But we have very different kind of focus areas, right? His whole dream was to create these interesting custom flavors, and, and some are such great ideas. I mean, this this trio of, you know, Hawaii tropical trio, right? Which is not, you know, your cliche pineapple and whatnot, right? It's it's wild pick guava, it's calamansi, which is really locally, you know, relevant citrus and mangoes that we happen to inherit some young trees on our own farm. So I think that was really unique, and I think, like you mentioned, these these gift boxes. But, I think the another unique thing about our company is the majority of what we produce is in these very small five gram Napolitans, which I think really reduces that kind of barrier to entry for tasting, right? So as opposed to, you know, spending seven, eight, nine dollars for a single bar of a single flavor, you know, you can get this assortment of small pieces, which are a personal like personal single you know, bite is, is, is unique. And I think that that's really helped us let people that aren't, aren't used to anything other than the grocery store chocolate kind of access the, the range of what's out there. Well, my motto is, if it's not that good, don't eat it. And so I like a little something that's very fine. And so that's what I found to be kind of a joy with the Maui chocolate, just with the variety of flavors. I'm just thinking, gosh, it, would, it could pair so well with wine. You know, you talk about what wine has done for Napa. So, right. yeah, I, I think about the possibilities uh, for agro-tourism, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And you folks are doing tours out there on Maui. Yeah, it's actually a pretty busy tour, more than 20,000 people a year. And so and it's very interesting, you know, driving through Lahaina, one of the driest parts of the state, and it's, it's all former sugarcane land, you know, that, that basically went out in the, in the mid-90s. And so you're driving through this mile of, you know, very desolate-looking terrain, and then it opens up into this huge, you know, green kind of oasis and a, a bit of a forest we've created. So cacao-like shade. So there's big shade trees and there's windbreaks and then these you know, huge tropical trees. And most people have never even seen a cacao tree or fruit. And it kind of blows their mind. Even the the people that from Italy that sold us and came to install our chocolate machines in the factory. We took them to the farm. Many of them have been making chocolate machinery for 30 years and had never actually seen a tree or fruit. So it's kind of interesting that that, that disconnect between like the source, the raw material of chocolate and, you know, the product we consume um, is like an abyss between the two. I have to admit, uh, I'm a huge chocolate fiend and I never thought much about that farm to table concept. You know, you just get go to the store and get chocolate. But yeah, to be out on the farm and to actually taste the fresh cacao pulp, that was an experience. Right. And on that, about 30% of, you know, what's used to actually make the final dried bean is that pulp that you're talking about. And so normally it's just discarded, incidentally, as a byproduct. And you'll see some people now selling juices and things. But what we started doing this year in Maui is actually pressing and collecting that juice and making it into a sorbet. And it has enough sugar and enough acidity to balance that there's no added ingredients. It's just cacao juice put into an ice cream machine, and it, it comes out. It's It's been really, really popular and, uh, you know, a great way to use a, what is otherwise a byproduct. That Honestly, I think I kind of prefer the, the pulp and the sorbet to the chocolate itself. Well, what a great idea because that's another value-added product, right, that you're you're producing on the farm. For sure. Yeah. And 
sorbet and chocolate. What could be better? <laughs> yeah. And so as a small farm, you folks have been really doing some cutting edge stuff over there. Yeah. So on the actual like planting and, and establishment side, so so having a really wide collection of varieties that otherwise don't exist in the state. I've had like a long standing collaborative relationship with USDA who's done the, the genotyping. So basically like genetic uh, fingerprinting. And so verifying that, you know, the varieties that we have, that we cultivate, you know, as single blocks and can even go all the way through the process by single varieties. We know that what we're doing, you know, really is what it's supposed to be. So on that that side, that that's makes us kind of very unique. And then the, the post-harvest process, which is like the fermentation and drying as well. So one, we have kind of um, a lot of real-time monitoring of what's happening during the fermentation. Typically, cacao fermentation is just a spontaneous process, right? You basically harvest the fruit, pile it into a large wooden box, and um, kind of hope it just goes well. You know, it's usually fermented for about a week, plus or minus a couple of days. But because it's spontaneous and not inoculated in the way that, say, you know, beers and wines and yogurts and many other fermented products are, there's inherent variability. And so by by looking at fermentation in real time, each one can get adjusted. You know, one goes a little slower and so we might extend it an extra day. So those are kind of two of the of the of the many innovations that we've developed that we think um, kind of make us unique. That was Dan Doherty, Vice President of Maui Kuia State Chocolates, who we talked to earlier this week about the company's beginnings and hopes for the future. And yes, that was before the wildfire swept through Lahaina, uh, near where their factory is located and near the site of their farm. So much uncertainty during this time. We are rooting for them to recover. That does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we plan to talk to UH scientist Chip Fletcher about the harsh realities of climate change and our ability to respond in a crisis situation. Were you affected by the wildfires? Please share your story. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something? Find the Conversation podcast on our website or on Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.